0: Oh, graveyard, oh, graveyard, I'm walking through the graveyard, lay this body down, I see Welcome back to the American Writers, a 100-pages-at-a-time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at a small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. And right now, I am looking at the works of, of turn-of-the-century black writers. In particular, I'm looking at Charles Chestnut, W.E.P. Du Bois, and, and in the future, I'll be starting a series on James Waldon Johnson. Right now, we're in the middle of my series on W.E.B. Du Bois, and right now, in particular, I'm looking at his 1940 autobiography and collection of essays called *Dusk of Dawn*. Du Bois puts *Dusk of Dawn* alongside his two other collections of essays, uh, written at different periods in the history of the Black freedom struggle and the relationship, uh, his relationship with Jim Crow. And, and world history. So the first of these is The Souls of Black Folk. I have a series on that. You can go back and listen to it. That was published in 1903. And then I think in 1920 or so, he wrote Dark Water. And we'll look at some essays that were published in Dark Water a little bit later, but you know the Library of America didn't collect all of Dark Water. And then in 1940, you have Dusk of Dawn. He originally approached this work as a very a late life kind of memoir or autobiography. He calls it an essay towards an autobiography of a race concept. So he started writing it as an autobiography, and over time, he ended up going back to his form of really writing on essays about race, race relations, and but it's a little bit more self-reflective and a little bit more on his own experiences. The first half of this book in particular is really much about his early life, his education, how he came to understand race coming from the North, coming from a uh, A highly educated background, having attended, got his PhD in Harvard, of course, and he he studied at Fisk. He was involved in academic history and academic sociology and other fields like that. And then he talks about how he went from that to become a teacher and then eventually to become an activist in the Niagara movement and later on as one of the founders of NAACP and then as uh, the editor of The Crisis. So he talks about a lot of that in the first half Of the book it's really in the second half of dusk of dawn that he really starts to take On directly questions of race and world history and the global crisis that he was in of course He writes this in 1940 at a time when race is a major force in world history and one of The major causes of the second world war was not it was of course in many ways it was an Ideological war but race was at the backdrop of that colonialism was in the backdrop of the war and he brings all of this to bear in his, his analysis. And I think what he's really come to by 1940 is an awareness of the struggle of African-Americans as part of a struggle of the global proletariat against capital and against racism and an empire, and that this is really a part of a global struggle. And in the chapter I'm gonna start with today, called The Concept of Race, he really comes out and starts talking about Africa. And so I think this work is also very interesting for people who want to study kind of the Afrocentric narrative and how black Americans saw Africa and and how their ideas about Africa changed over time. Because I think it's a rather fascinating relationship. Because of the experience of, of slavery, the Middle Passage, African-Americans didn't really have this personal experience with Africa, but Africa instead became a homeland, right? And what did that mean? Of course, it changes depending on who you talk to, but there's a lot of different ideas about this. And later on, we'll look at essays he wrote criticizing Marcus Garvey, for instance, who saw Africa as as a geopolitical homeland, a potential geopolitical homeland for black people. It's kind of it's kind of a a Zionist uh, in a sense, in the sense that he saw africa as as a homeland and it should be an independent political homeland for black people across the continent uh du bois doesn't quite go that far but certainly he believes that the struggle of black americans is tied to the struggle of africans for independence so i'm going to just jump right into this is actually quite halfway through i I kind of cheated in the last episode i didn't do a full hundred pages but i I looked at the first four chapters, which are the more autobiographical chapters, and then chapters five through nine of this book really get more into the concept of race. And I'll I'll try to highlight some of the major themes he talks about in this part. Um, I, I just want to say that this is really, I think, crucial and important reading, these, these five chapters. To understand Du Bois, it's the first time I've ever read these. I, I haven't, you know, I've read Souls of Black Folk several times before. Um, but like the suppression of the slave trade, this will be the first time I've This was the first time I read Dusk of Dawn, and it was kind of eye-opening for me. I always knew that Du Bois was very interested in Africa later in his life, interested in global capitalism, you know, from my other readings of his. But I I didn't quite know how good this was, this stuff was. So anyways, um, I'm going to start here with Chapter 5, The Concept of Race. So he... He, he can't help resist going always going back to autobiography. And he even talks about his family racial history here. And I, I think his main point here is when he went to Germany and when he was at Harvard, but he, I think he talks a, a lot here about his time in Germany where race was a science. And it was something that was studied scientifically. And he he comments that Americans outside of maybe Harvard and a few uh, institutions tended to not really look at race scientifically. They looked at it more emotionally and historically, and because it was much more something, it was much more a lived experience than maybe in Europe. Europeans had the luxury, I guess, of looking at race scientifically. Americans didn't. Americans it was lived in their social relations, so that that made the concept of race quite different in the U.S. And he also talks about how the actual study of race relations and racial oppression from a scientific point of view or sociological point of view, have been restricted and repressed in the U.S. due to institutionalized racism, particularly in in the South. Now, after this, he goes into this long discussion of his family history, which is, of course, very interesting for him to reflect on because he's really coming to the question, by, by what grounds am I black? Is it based on my heritage? Is it based on how other people see me? Is it based on on blood you know where does it really come from and he doesn't come to a firm answer he says at one point living with my mother's people i absorbed their culture patterns and these were not african so much as dutch in new england their speech was an idiomatic new england tongue with no african dialect my family customs were new england and the sex mores my african racial feelings was then purely a matter of my own later learning and reaction my recoil from the assumption of the whites, my experience in the South at Fisk, but it was nonetheless real and a large determinant of my life and character. I felt myself African by race, and by that token was African and an integral member of the group of dark Americans who were called Negroes. At the same time, I was firm in asserting that that these Negroes were Americans, and the reason and on that basis of my great-great-grandfather's revolutionary record, I was accepted as a member of the Massachusetts Society of the Sons of the American Revolution in 1908. When, however, the notice of this election reached the headquarters in Washington and was emphasizing by my requesting a national certificate, the Secretary A. Howard Clark of the Smithsonian Institute wrote to Massachusetts and deemed proof of marriage of the ancestor of Tom Burgot and the record of birth of his son. He knew, of course, that the birth record of a stolen African slave could not be procured. My membership was therefore suspended. So he has got a very personal story here of his efforts to try to join this civic organization celebrating this revolutionary heritage and he gets denied because of of race so this you know to what degree were black people of america but what they're also not of africa really and that's the tension he's getting at here and this is this kind of allows him to then meditate on as problematic as as what is being american for black americans that's tough enough but what does being african really mean what does it mean to say one is an african and that's not clear either because of that long historical break due to slavery he actually straight up quotes um, Conti Collins poem quote what is Africa to me copper sun or scarlet sea jungle star or jungle track strong bronze men or regal black women from whose loins I sprang when the birds of Eden sang one three centuries removed from the scenes his fathers loved spicy grove cinnamon trees what is Africa to me and Du Bois really can't Why answer this and this is his dilemma in much of the second half of of the book what is his relationship to to Africa and he actually has to come to the conclusion that it's really as part of this global proletariat that this really matters this relationship really matters it's not so much about blood or or race as it is actually lived experiences of oppression in in a in the context of empire and here's how he said it but for one thing is sure, and that is the fact that since the 15th century, these ancestors of mine and their descendants have had a common history, had suffered a common disaster, and have one long memory. The actual ties of heritage between the individuals of this group vary with ancestors that they have in common in many others. Europeans and Semites, press Mongolians, certainly American Indians, but the physical bond is least and the badge of color relative unimportant save as a badge the real essence of this kinship is the social heritage of slavery the discrimination and insult and this heritage binds together not simply the children of africa but extends through yellow asia and into the south seas it is this unity that draws me to africa end quote so it's a really important point and it allows him to then bridge into the rest of his study which is going to deal with global politics in in the first half of the 20th century. So this is followed by a, a rather philosophical chapter called the white world. It's a bit hard to get at fully. The heart of his idea here is that in the context of racism and white supremacy and empire, it is whites who are defining the world largely. So it's important to get at, at the white conception of, of reality which he certainly thinks is distorted, but it's it, this distortion is meaningful because of the power that white people had in in defining the world system. So he tries to get into the white head a little bit in in this chapter. And the biggest distortion of the white mind over the rest of the world is this essential idea of superiority in all things. And he, he talks about various aspects of it, for instance, a little bit about even beauty. And he's got a really fascinating Section where he does he 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 can't quite understand why white people don't find black people beautiful or or why whites presumed blackness to be equated with ugliness quote In in short compare humanity at its worth with with the ideal and humanity suffers But black folks in most attributes of physical beauty in line and height and curve have the same norms as whites and differ only in small degrees of color hair and curve of continents now, can there be any question but that as colors, bronze, mahogany, coffee, and gold are far lovelier than pink, gray, and marble? Hair is a matter of taste. Some will have it drab and stringy, another will have it gray, woven, and unmoving mass. Most of us like it somewhat between in little tiny tendrils, smoking curls, and sweeping curves. I have loved in all the varieties of my day. I prefer the crinkly kind, almost wavy and black, brown, and glistening gold. In faces, I hate straight features, needles, and razors, may be sharp, but never beautiful. And yeah, this is a very subjective taste, but he's just talking about the arbitrariness of of kind of the, the aesthetic assumption of whiteness being more beautiful than blackness. But he, he goes from this and talks about other things as well, like why is white forms of government derived from Europe superior to, quote, black iron welding and village democracy and yellow printing and state building? Those are real forms of government that exist in world history and have endured and survived and and show human creativity in terms of of creation of government yet the assumption is that the european form of government is is superior so where does this habit of mind come from this the presumption of superiority in all things and the answer he comes to is essentially the world system we live in is based on and needs exploitation and so he comes to basically a class analysis of of racial divisions and the white basically basically he includes here that the white assumption of inferiority in all their races and groups and, and cultures is an extension of the needs of exploitation quote no use wincing at the word no sense in letting roosevelt in the new deal mislead you the poor must be poor so that the rich may be rich that's clear and true it means using it means using the world, word, world for the good of the world and for those who own it, bringing out its wealth in abundance, making the lazy and shiftless and ignorant work for their soul's good and for the profit of their betters, who alone are capable of using their wealth to promote culture. And finally, empire. The white race is ruler of the world and the world's working for it and the world's wealth piled up for the white man's use. This may seem harsh and selfish and yet, of course, it was perfectly natural. Naturally, white men would and must rule and any question of their ruling should be met and settled promptly and so that's the answer he comes to it's it's basically the necessity of exploitation requires an ideological framework that that assumes the inferiority of the non-white world so this is the core sickness in the white mind according to du bois at least in this chapter the next chapter we have in this book is called the color ruled within this is chapter seven and this chapter largely rehashes the, the themes we saw in The Souls of Black Folk, especially on the veil and double consciousness. So in that sense, it's not fully original, but he, he kind of extends this discussion of how black people see themselves. And he's really interested in this question of self-criticism. And he sees self-criticism a reflection of white r- racism towards black. So white racism gets re reinjected. Into this form of of black self-criticism, which on one level you could say is a good thing, uh, you know, from the perspective of racial uplift perhaps, but he says this is really just a re-injecting of of white stereotypes and racist assumptions about black people. So when talking about uplift and the talented 10th, he says, quote, most Negroes do not believe that this can be done. They not only share American public's opinion and distrust in distrusting the inherent ability of the Negro group, but they see no way in which the present classes who have proven their intelligence and efficiency can gain leadership over their own people. On the contrary, they fear desperately a vulgarization of emerging culture among them by contact with the ignorant and antisocial mass. This fear has been accentuated by recent racial agitation. Unwashed and unshaven black demagogues have scared and browbeaten cultured Negroes have convinced them that their leadership could only be secured through demagoguery. It's for this reason that we see in large northern cities like Chicago and New, New York, intelligent, efficient Negroes combining with crime, gambling and prostitution in order to secure control of the Negro vote and gain place and income for black folk. As a sociologist and historian, Du Bois wants to ground real problems in African-American life in social causes and economic causes and in historical experience right of course but the big problem is that those. Those realities tend not to be considered by the, the society as whole and certainly not by racists it gets presumed these are the natural characteristics of of the race rather than products of his of a historical experience and he talks about things such as crime and lack of education and tries to explain these things through these historical forces the danger here of course is any actual effort to craft policy and create a, a generation of black leaders and to actually establish progress can't be based on a lie that's rooted in in the historical experience of slavery and Empire you know, and one thing Du Bois likes to point out, like on issues of crime and on issues of of poverty or ignorance is that for every ignorant black person who gets identified as evidence of of racial inferiority, you can point out plenty of ignorant criminal white people. Right. But they, they don't get they don't get chosen as proof of of white criminality by nature. Right. And then, of course, this is because white people are defining the terms of the debate and defining the races quote it goes without saying that while negroes are thus manifestly of low average culture in no place nor at any time do they form a homogeneous group even in the country districts of the Lower South, Allison Davis likens the group to a steeple with a wide base tapering to a high pinnacle. This means that while the poor, ignorant, sick, and antisocial form of vast foundation that upward from that base stretch classes whose highest members, although few in number, reach above the average, not only of the Negroes, but of the whites, and may justly be compromised to a better class white culture. The class structure of the whites, on the other hand, resembles a tower bulging near the center with the lowest class, so small in number, as compared with the middle lower and middle classes and the highest class is far more numerous than proportion in proportion than those among the blacks this of course is what one would naturally expect but it's easily forgotten the negro group is spoken continually as one undifferentiated lower class mass the culture of the highest whites is often considered as typical of all the whites so essentially his point of view here is that the that this self-perception has to be removed from racism before this uplift can actually even be talked about. And he really, he's saying the f- one thing we have to do before anything else is really get a handle on self-perception and, and break that self-perception of the race from, from white supremacy. And he still thinks at this point that the and Tenth has an important role to play in this changing of consciousness. So chapter 8 is called Propaganda and World War, and this chapter veers back to questions of of autobiography, and it, he kind of goes back to talk about his career. And so the two parts of this title, Propaganda and World War, well, propaganda is referring really to his work in the crisis and his work as a journalist and his work in the Niagara Movement and eventually the formation of the NAACP. So that's the kind of the propaganda side of it, and then, of course, the the experience of black america in the world war and what that meant uh, is the second half of this chapter now in the first half of this there's some interesting things continue his continuing conflict with booker t washington's approach and especially how the crisis was establishing itself establishing itself in contrast to the program put forth by booker t washington and i i talked a little bit about that in the previous few episodes especially when i looked at souls of black folk Uh, There's some fascinating things here, too, about black voters in 1912 in the 1912 election. Of course, traditionally, black voters supported the Republican Party, the party of Lincoln. Um, And that seems to have begun to change in 1912 with Wilson. Now, Wilson, of course, was a um, avowed racist and had all sorts of, of problems. But it seems, you know, he was like a big fan of Birth of the Nation, for instance. And I think he was a Klan member. I'm sorry, he wasn't a Klan member, but he, he supported and he used them politically. And, and so his relationship with this white supremacist organization has been debated and discussed by historians, but it's certainly not, you know, it's not clear he was on the side of, of anti-racism by any stretch of the imagination. But there were some elements that were trying to convince the crisis to maybe come out with, with Wilson. And that's kind of a fascinating uh, study, knowing that in the New Deal, African-Americans are going to shift in larger numbers to the Democratic Party, um, but maybe there were some roots of that here in the context of, of progressivism. In fact, he does talk also here about the opposition to um, the Birth of the Nation and the the efforts of the Crisis in the NAACP to to suppress that movie or you know to you know challenge its interpretation of Reconstruction. And this is of course a big theme of Black Reconstruction in America. I don't know if he directly mentions the birth of the nation in that book, but the whole heart of, of Black Reconstruction in America is to have a, a much more optimistic and uh, visionary interpretation of what Black people were engaged in in Reconstruction. They weren't just as presented in Birth of a Nation toadies of, of a corrupt Republican Party in the South. They were recreating the world in a very revolutionary way, according to Du Bois. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a future episode, because we have a, one chapter of Black Reconstruction of America is included in this collection. Um, now, but I think what's going to be most interesting to people in this chapter, propaganda in the world war, is going to be not so much the support or not for Wilson in 1912, but the support of the Wilsonian vision that gets proffered up as a, as a means to end the war. Right. So when the United States joined World War One, for whatever reason they did it, whether it was to support banking, whether it was to support, you know, kind of a cultural ally in Great Britain or, you know, was it a response to unrestricted submarine warfare, the Zimmer, Zimmerman telegram, whatever. Right. Wilson certainly came forth with this idea that the war should be about making the world safe for democracy. And he codifies this vision in the 14 points. Uh, one of which, infamously, is self-determination for nations. Now, the result of this is some European states did, after the war, get what we could call a form of self-determination, their own nations. Uh, but many European people didn't. And, of course, the colonial empires, the colonial world, didn't get self-determination. And, you know, and you had the case, like in China, where a mass, student movement, led to China not signing the Versailles Treaty because the Versailles Treaty gave Japanese holdings or German holdings in China to Japan. That movement's called the May 4th movement, if you're not familiar with it. Now some historians have called this the Wilsonian moment, this this kind of moment. It, it really was just a moment. It was really just 1919 before this was all betrayed. But this idea that that the war is going to end empire. Now, prior to even this, though, was the issue the NAACP and the crisis faced over to what degree should we as black leaders and black intellectuals support the war effort, right? And Du Bois came out begrudgingly in support of the war effort because he felt that it could be a way of of gaining other other rights in, in the United States. And he certainly saw a lot of good in war service you know, service in the military. And he talks about the great, great Migration as well, this movement of one to two million blacks from, from the South to Northern cities uh, in, in 19, 1917, 1918, 1919, really changing the demography of race in the United States. That said, though, there was an awareness of the role of race in empire and kind of the, uh, an exploitative global system That's at least in part defined by racial white supremacy in the war itself. Quote, in May, a conference of Negro organizations called in Washington adopted resolutions, which I wrote. We trace the real cause of this world war to the despising of the darker races by the dominant groups of men and the consequent fierce rivalry among European nations in their effort to use darker and backward people for the purposes of selfish gain regardless of the ultimate good of the oppressed we see permanent peace only in the extension of the principle of government by the consent of the governed not simply among the smaller nations of Europe but among the natives of Asia and Africa the West Indies and the Negroes of the United States End quote so in a sense he's taking this Wilsonian moment so he's quoting himself here but the idea here is that the war should be about ultimately ending empire both at home and and abroad the chapter though ends bittersweet and and we're told by the end of this chapter that this dream of national self-determination for black people is is not going to happen and he gives two pieces of evidence for this one is one is the explosion of racial violence in 1919 many of these this racial violence took place in the north in places where black people had recently moved to and and then the basically the support of the courts for the continuation of Jim Crow and and lynching and the failure of anti lynching legislation and things like that. So the it kind of ends on a kind on of more or less pessimistic note. And we're reminded that the Wilsonian moment really was just a moment in part because Wilson probably never fully backed a global interpretation of national self-determination and uh, because. The world system based on empire and exploitation was going to endure after the war. And then this brings us to the final chapter of the book called called Revolution. And revolution here works in a lot of ways. On on the one hand, certainly he's got 1917 in his mind and the Russian Revolution and his own turn towards towards, towards, uh, the more radical left. And but then also the revolution for black rights within the United States. And I, th- I think where Du Bois comes down in this last chapter is the realization that there really has to be a broader radical solution and that the, the solution to the problems of race really must be global. He's, he's dropped hints of this throughout the book, but in the sense that this book is an autobiography, it's really in the decade after World War One, in the 1920s where the failure, I guess, of this kind of Wilsonian moment and the rise of the Russian Revolution that, that pushes Du Bois to, I guess, a more radical uh, perspective that sees the problem really in a global system of of racial supremacy. Quote, Those questions involved the problem of the poverty of the mass of men in an age where an abundance of goods and technological efficiency of work seemed able to provide a sufficiency for all men so that the mass of men could be fed and clothed and sheltered, live in health, and have their intellectual facilities trained. Russia was trying to accomplish this by eventually putting into the hands of the people who do the world's work, the power to guide and rule the state for the best welfare of the masses. It made the assumption long disputed that out of the downtrodden mass of people, ability and character sufficient to do this task effectively. Could and would be found. I believe this dictum passionately. It was, in fact, the fo- foundational stone of my fight for black folk. It, it explained me. I've been brought up with the democratic idea that this general welfare was the object of democratic action in the state of, of allowing the governed a voice in government. But through through the crimson crimson illumination of war, I realized, and afterwards by travel around the world saw even more clearly that so-called democracy today was allowing the peop- the mass of people to have only a limited voice in government that democratic control of what are at present the most important functions of men work and earning a living and distributing goods and services and here that here we did not have democracy we had an oligarchy An oligarchy based on monopoly and income and this oligarchy was as determined to deny democracy in industry as it had been determined to deny democracy in legislation and choice of officials so there you have it. That's Du Bois's support essentially for, for socialism based on the capacity of, of the economy to provide mass prosperity for all people yet denying it to most. And then he, in this chapter, he's got the, if you're interested in them, his experience with the politics of, with, of the NAACP and the crisis in the 1920s into the 1930s when when this account was written. Uh, but essentially, the point of the final chapter is his turn to conceiving of the Black freedom struggle in global terms, and really as a struggle against capitalism and an empire more broadly, and and that kind of does it. Uh, he now he he probably di- wasn't sure he was going to write too many books at this point. He does often write this, in the sense you feel this is his final statement. Uh, he is going to live another. Twenty-three years, I think. After this, he lived into his his nineties, so he would have he would write more. But there is kind of a definitive nature to Dusk of Dawn, which I think makes it uh, rather interesting reading, especially because it is an autobiography, and people often write those later in their life when they've had kind of the full intellectual development of theirs to look back on and to, and to meditate on. Um, but uh, there you have it. I mean, actually, for such a short book, it's just a little bit over 200 pages, you have an account of, of an individual, but also account of a, the development of, of, a, of a movement and of institutions and the changing of one man's ideas about race from the very local, from really his interactions with friends and family in a small northern town to, to the global politics of, of war and empire. So I guess that does it for *Dusk of Dawn*. It's really one uh, you should take a look at if you're interested in, and whether it's Afrocentrism or the, the politics of the Black diaspora, or just Du Bois himself. I mean, I think it's just a wonderful window into his his life. And if you don't have time to read a whole biography of Du Bois, of which there are several, this really fills in a lot of the details of his life. Um, So what's next in this series on Du Bois? Um, Well, the collection of the Library of America just has these three books, The Suppression of the Slave Trade, The Souls of Black Folk, and Dusk of Dawn. So the rest of it are essays, and it's basically in two parts. We have some of his more extended essays, and some of those essays are actually chapters of Dark Water or Black Reconstruction in America or other works. So there's about 300 pages of these kind of essays and there's probably 20 or so of them. So I'll look at those over three uh, episodes um, and they're all pretty good and in, in relevant. So the editors here really chose the most relevant ones. And I know I was anxious earlier in this series about not really having Black Reconstruction in America to talk about here, but in a way I can understand the way they handled it here. They put the most important essays from Darkwater and at least one from black reconstruction in america in here so they're represented if, if we don't have their full text and then the last episode of this series is going to be his articles from the crisis now by nature these are newspaper articles and they're very short they're mostly less they're mostly like one or two pages and so there's probably like 50 of them so i'll i'll find a way to talk about those just in one episode but they're they're on a whole host of topics and i think they really are interesting because they are newspaper articles and they're presenting kind of short opinion pieces on a variety of issues, um, you know, kind of on a weekly basis. Um, so, but we'll start with these more extended essays and chapters of, of other book books and then get to that. So there'll be four more episodes on, on Du Bois before we move on to James Walden Johnson. So anyways, thanks for listening to this little series on Dusk of Dawn. Um, if you have any of your own comments about... The themes that Du Bois talks about in this book or in his other writings, please write me an email at hundredpagescast at gmail.com. I would love very much to hear from you. Um, but if not, I will be back with some more of Du Bois' writing. Uh, thanks again for listening. I see the moonlight. I'm walking through the moonlight. Late